Listeners on CJTR Community Radio at 91.3 FM and over the internet at cjtr.ca. We can also be heard on SASTEL Max at Channel 806 and Access Communications Digital Service at Channel 700. Wherever you are, welcome to Human Rights Radio, hosted weekly by Amnesty International volunteers. Our theme song is titled 30 Words The Universal Declaration of Human Rights written and performed by R.E.M. and a collection of musicians from around the world. I'm Jim Hutchings, and with me is my co-host, Gord Barnes. Today, by telephone, we have a very special guest in the person of Alex Neve, Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, English-speaking section. And, Alex, it's really wonderful to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure. pleasure. I always enjoy having a good human rights conversation with Saskatchewan activists. Well, it's uh, the pleasure is certainly mutual, and um, uh, Alex Neve became Secretary General in January of 2000. He shares the senior leadership with the Executive Director. Alex is the primary spokesperson for the branch. Among his many other duties, he has participated in Amnesty International missions to South Sudan, Cote d'Ivoire, Tanzania, Ghana, Mexico, Burundi, Chad, Colombia, Guinea, Honduras, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Guantanamo Bay, uh, where else we are, oh yes, and Grassy Narrows, Ontario, and of course people should be familiar with uh, the situation in Grassy Narrows, that's a situation that's been there for a very long time and unfortunately uh, <laughs> is uh, still an important issue. And uh, Alex has represented Amnesty International at international meetings such as the Summit of the Americas and the G8 Summit. He's appeared before numerous Canadian parliamentary committees as well as various UN and inter-American uh, human rights bodies. He appears and writes regularly in the media and speaks to audiences across the country on a range of human rights topics. Alex is the chair of the board of directors of the Canadian Centre for International Justice and a member of the board of directors of Partnership Africa Canada and the Centre for Law and Democracy. He served as a Trudeau Foundation mentor from 2008 to 2009. Alex holds a Bachelor Laws from Dalhousie and an LLM in International Human Rights Law from the University of Essex. In 2009, he was awarded an Honorary Do Doctorate of Laws degree from the uh, University of New Brunswick. He was named an Officer of the Order of Canada in 2007. Wow. Uh, you've been busy, Alex. 
<laughs> there's been a lot going on, but it's, <laughs> all of that is not just about me. That's uh, in concert with the many, many thousands of, of strong amnesty supporters and activists right across the country, a good number of whom are in Saskatchewan. And just before we carry on here, Alex, uh, I'm not sure whether uh, Gord mentioned to you before, but we're at the tail end here now of CJTR's Radiothon Week, and it's uh, a major fundraiser for the radio station. And, uh, of course, uh, CJTR's existence means that we're able to have this show and uh, for that purpose, we're very much involved and uh, supportive of their effort to uh, make some money. And uh, so I'm just going to touch on a few points about CJTR. Uh, CJTR has been on the air in Regina for 15 years in November of this year, uh, delivering the mix of music and spoken word shows that can't be heard anywhere else on Regina Radio. And... Uh, uh, CJTR provides a, a space for non-profit organizations such as ourselves to spread their message through interviews and affordable advertising. We've got over 100 volunteers from our community uh, who produce and deliver great radio shows on CJTR every week. And these folks are friends and neighbors here in Regina. So anyway, I, I would just like to uh, mention the grand prize. And uh, the grand prize, if you uh, donate $25 or more, We'll enter your name in our Radiothon 2016 Donors Draw, which consists of a week-long, all-inclusive holiday to KO Santa Maria, Cuba, for two adults, round-trip airfare from Regina to KO Santa Maria, Cuba, seven nights at the Hotel KO Santa Maria in KO Santa Maria, Cuba. <laughs> Where else? This trip is courtesy of Carlson Vaughanly Record Travel and Transat. And the grand prize draw is going to be held at 5 p.m. today, actually, uh, live on air here at CJTR. So for complete contest rules, go to www.cjtr.ca. And uh, we hope uh, that you'll be generous uh, if you donate $50, you get a, a mug. If you donate $100, you'll get a T-shirt, as well as being entered in uh, daily draws as well. The, and the winter, the winner rather of the $100 gift certificate from Vintage Vinyl for yesterday was Judy Erickson of Regina. So, on to the matters at hand, Alex. Um, I'm going to turn things over to Gord, and uh, and we'll we'll start our conversation. Alex, uh, I would I would like to uh, join Jim in welcoming you to the program and thanking you for taking a, your time out of a very busy schedule. Um, it's a, a real honor for us to have you as our guest on Human Rights Radio today. And uh, I hope the people who are listening in uh, find it an interesting program. I was just thinking as um, Jim was talking about Radiothon and the importance of community radio and supporting community radio, I recall you, Alex, uh, referring to your role in uh, a community, or I think it might have been a university radio program in Halifax many, many years ago, and um, you've you've had some uh, early experiences in this in terms of your your contribution to community, or I, I think you said it was a university radio station. Absolutely, that's a, that's a remarkable uh, recollection on your behalf. Your behalf there. Uh, when I first joined uh, Amnesty International, it was while I was studying law at Dalhousie University back in the mid-'80s, so this was by no means yesterday. And, uh, and we were approached by the campus station, CKDU at Dalhousie, wanting to know if we might like some airtime. We had never thought of it before. Certainly there wasn't anyone in the group who had any particular radio experience or inclination, but we jumped at it because... It was obvious to us, as it's been obvious to you through your wonderful initiative, that um, anything that gives an opportunity to reach a wider audience, to open eyes, to amplify the human rights message is all good. So uh, a few of us became uh, radio personalities uh, overnight, <laughs> and uh, for a couple of years, uh, once a week, uh, put on a show called Wired for Freedom. Uh, which obviously was playing off the, the barbed wire 
theme of the Amnesty International candle that many people will be familiar with. And I remember it being a, a tremendous opportunity. It really uh, got us thinking. It, it forced us to think uh, about, well, you know, we've got these long, complicated reports and overwhelming issues that we want people to know about, but how do we do that in a way that's going to be compelling, that's going to be meaningful, and above all, is going to hopefully compel people to become involved and take action. And there was a lot of learning along the way. <laughs> so, Alex, um, when we were talking about the, the idea that you'd be our guest today, um, one of the ideas we had was uh, it's almost uh, the anniversary of the election of a new government in Canada, um, the first anniversary. So it might be a timely um, topic to have you share um, your perspectives and experiences in terms of working with the new Canadian government on Amnesty International's human rights agenda. And uh, maybe we, as we do that, you can share where we've had some success and where also there needs to be some more work. And uh, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to sort of give you that opportunity now to kind of go through uh, some of the concerns that we've got and some of the successes we've had in terms of our um, first year in terms of, as I say, working with the new Canadian government. Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot to say. I'm sure we can easily fill today's show by exploring <laughs> that. I think it's also important to begin by by reminding listeners or, or letting listeners know uh, that this shouldn't in any way be interpreted as Amnesty International having political views one way or the other. We obviously are entirely focused on our human rights mandate and the kinds of violations of human rights that we want to see ended and the kinds of human rights reforms that we want to see enacted. And we don't take a position on what parties should or should not be in power in any particular government in any particular country and um, and we don't we don't even say which party has been better or worse than another um, clearly under the previous government the the Stephen Harper government we I think we are, our public record speaks for itself that we did have quite a range of concerns and that over the years, our concerns had been growing, uh, and it applied to both domestic human rights concerns and positions and policies that Canada was advancing and adopting uh, in within our foreign policy as well, our relationships with other countries or uh, activities we were engaged in at the United Nations. So this change of government, therefore, offered uh, we hoped an opportunity for some of those areas of concern to be revisited. Anytime there's a change of government, there, there's always that opening for a new beginning, even if it's within the same party. You know, uh, And we always come forward quite quickly with our set of recommendations around what we think does need to change. And we certainly did that very quickly uh, with this uh, change of government. The timing was, was quite coincidentally helpful on our front because it was coming towards the end of the year and at the end of the year we always go public with what we call our human rights agenda for Canada which is our overview of what Canada has been doing well and, and what Canada could and should be doing better and so we use that as an opportunity to, to set the agenda uh, for the new government uh, and certainly highlighting the areas that we've been very seriously concerned about. And now that we're a number of months into that, I, you know, it, it's nice to be able to say that quite a few of those, we've got a long way to go yet, and I'll certainly come to that, but let's start with what's been encouraging and, and the progress we've seen. Uh, there certainly have been uh, a number of uh, very important and, and, and some of them quite troubling uh, human rights failings uh, that have been turned around quite quickly, and some of them will be very well known to all of your listeners. Obviously, the top of the list would have to be the, the monumental effort across the country led by the government to resettle now over 32,000 Syrian refugees, um, and that was a complete sea change from where we'd been for the two or three years before that, where Amnesty had been pushing hard 
for Canada to be much more responsive, much more, much more generous uh, to the mounting heartbreaking Syrian refugee crisis. And not only Canada, it was a message we were conveying to other governments as well, because there was certainly shared international responsibility for failing Syrian refugees. And everyone will recall that, of course, it did become an election issue, largely because of the heartbreaking photo of, of little Alan Kurdi's lifeless body on a Turkish beach. And that provoked the parties to make some, uh, some very impressive commitments as to what they would do, and even the previous government upped its game. But we then waited uh, with a bit of bated breath after the election. I think we all know that uh, the difference between what governments promise and what they do can sometimes be considerable. And we wondered and worried whether we would quite quickly hear, well, yes, that's what we said, but now that we're faced with the numbers and now that we're faced with the budgeting, we need to scale it back, we need to slow it down. But we didn't see that. Uh, of course, it really became an all-of-government, full-out push, and, and all of Canada joined in, and that's very encouraging. The other uh, very significant high-profile um, progress we've seen, of course, has been with regard to murdered and missing Indigenous women. That's an area that Amnesty International has been working on since 2004. Uh, we launched a major report in 2004. Some people may know of it. It's called Stolen Sisters. Uh, and and we have worked relentlessly on this issue ever since, in, including very importantly at local level groups in Saskatoon, Regina, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, Halifax, right across the country have been very engaged at local level in keeping the profile up, engaging with their own local politicians, building local partnerships with family members and frontline indigenous women's organizations. And it was a long, slow slog, uh, because even though there'd been wide recognition by pretty well everyone, every single provincial premier, for instance, was on board with re recognizing the severity of the issue and that the step forward needed to be the combination of a public inquiry leading to a national action plan. Uh, that last step, the inquiry and action plan, the previous government simply refused to acknowledge uh, as being necessary. So, obviously, I don't need to tell everyone, I think it's, it's well known that we saw progress on that immediately. First, the government launching a fairly lengthy consultation process to help them figure out what the best approach and, and how to best design the terms of reference for the inquiry. And now, as of September the 1st, uh, the inquiry has been established and has begun its work. It doesn't mean that, it's, uh, that we can sit back and say that the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls in Canada has been solved. Far from it. Uh, it's, it's actually, in many respects, even though it feels like the end of an enormous struggle, it's really the beginning, because now we're finally having something that's going to give us the opportunity to grapple with this issue, understand the extent of the problems, and then formulate the kinds of recommendations, action plan, uh, that is necessary to address it. And it's at that stage that I know there will again be a very important role for activist groups like Amnesty International, holding the government accountable, pushing them to actually take up the recommendations. So th those are just two of the things that have happened uh, in, the, in the first few months, but I think those are two that are, uh, that are really worth highlighting. One of the things that I, I uh, in addition to the two you referenced, Alex, uh, uh, when I look back over the last year that was really significant was when the... Uh, I believe it was Minister Dion uh, indicated the Government of Canada would uh, sign on to the optional protocol uh, um, against torture. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could sort of update us with respect to that and, you know, go, go over, first of all, that announcement and, and where we are now in terms of uh, the Government of Canada um, addressing that. Uh, that's a that's a great one to to bring up, Gord, and it and it's one I think that within Amnesty across the country we feel particularly pleased about because, in many respects, this this one really was ours. Uh, this this is the issue that we had been pushing long and hard for. Uh, it goes back to 2002, uh, which is when the United Nations adopted an important new treaty dealing with torture prevention. Sounds like a pretty good thing. 
Uh, and it was quite unique within the realm of human rights treaties because while most treaties are a list of promises that governments are making about what they won't do or what they will do, uh, promises which then many governments just turn around and break, uh, this treaty actually sets up a mechanism to, to make sure that one very important human rights promise, uh, that people will not be tortured, uh, is actually going to become reality. And it does so by creating national and international level prison inspection teams that are empowered to go into jails, holding centers, detention centers, prison camps, you name it, anywhere where someone's person is, the person's liberty is taken away from them. And inspect, and inspect looking for the signs that we know lead to torture. And we know what those are. Amnesty knows what those are. UN experts knows what those are. That's when there's incommunicado detention, when there's solitary confinement, when prisoners aren't allowed to have private visits with lawyers, when there's very poor or non-existent prison registries kept, and on and on. There's a long list of, of what we know makes torture possible. So these committees get in there, they look for that, and then they demand that those practices end and change. Very practical, very important. One might like to think, therefore, that Canada signed on, so this was back in December of 2002. Surely Jean Chrétien's government signed on by March 2003. Think again. Maybe Paul Martin's government signed on by October 2005. Sorry, you'd be wrong again. Maybe any of the three Stephen Harper governments over the course of 10 years signed on. No, no, and no. So it was getting to be perplexing, but, but very troubling that Canada, a country clearly against torture, wasn't signing on to an international treaty meant to prevent it. And, and I think it's worth noting here that the reason we felt it was so important wasn't, of course, that torture is rampant in Canadian prisons and there's no oversight bodies or inspectors or investigators who have any power to look into that. Uh, we wanted Canada, I mean, I mean, not that some extra scrutiny is a bad thing, it's always a good thing, and we certainly did welcome it for our own jails and detention centers, but the main reason we wanted Canada to sign on to it is we need Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, Belarus, Ethiopia, we need countries where torture is out of control and where there is no scrutiny, where there are no inspections. We need those countries to be subject to this new process. And Canada has absolutely no right to ask them to do so if we're still sitting on the sidelines ourselves. So it was really more that we wanted Canada to sign on to this torture prevention treaty as a way of strengthening our voice around preventing torture in other countries. Well, this had all gone nowhere for many years, uh, but we decided with the change of government and obviously uh, some encouraging indications that, amongst other things, the new government was very interested in re-engaging with the United Nations, that it was worth giving one more concerted push. And this came at the end of a major two-year global campaign that Amnesty's been doing with respect to the issue of torture. So it all kind of lined up, and there was some, some good timing. And we threw everything at it. We had petitions circulating on the Internet. We had petitions being handed out at public events and tables in shopping malls. We had um, uh, our youth networks mobilized around this, and they brought all sorts of energy and inspiration. We had... Uh, we had a photo exhibit with powerful accounts from uh, torture survivors who live in Canada telling why this was so important. And all of this culminated with uh, an event, uh, two days' worth of events, on Parliament Hill in early May. Uh, a youth delegation was arriving. We had plans for a rally, a press conference, and also a reception uh, hosted by MPs and senators from all of the parties, to which we were hoping as many Parliamentary Hill uh, MPs, senators, and their staff, as possible, would come. And at the last minute, we we got agreement that Foreign Minister Dion would join us and that he would be willing to say a few words. 
Well, Gord, I can't tell you how I, how delighted I was when he took to the podium and his opening words to the assembled audience were, ladies and gentlemen, the optional protocol, that's what it's called, the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture will not be optional for Canada anymore. So he was signaling that he was now going to move Canada towards signing on to this. That doesn't mean it happened the next day. It actually becomes a bit of a complicated process because since this deals with jails uh, and since many, probably even most of the jails in Canada are actually under provincial and territorial jurisdiction, not federal jurisdiction, before Canada can take the final step and Minister Dion can fly down to the UN in New York and sign the optional protocol, uh, we have to have the provinces and territories on board. And that's what's underway right now. The federal government has launched a consultation process, and, uh, and we're reaching out to all of the provinces. We have certainly written to Premier Wall uh, and urged him uh, to, in all ways possible, convey to the federal government that Saskatchewan is supportive of this and that Saskatchewan agrees this is something that Canada should do as quickly as possible, and that Saskatchewan is prepared to do whatever may be necessary to facilitate the prison inspections if and when they occur in Saskatchewan. So that's what we're waiting for now. That won't happen in the course of a couple of weeks. Um, we've urged the federal government to try to get it done by the one-year anniversary of Minister Dion's remarks. That would be early May of next year. Um, but uh, but at a minimum, we're hoping that it will happen sometime in 2017. Well, Alex, we've gotten to the bottom of our first half hour, believe it or not. And uh, we're going to take a break and uh, come back with some music from the uh, the Bob Dylan 4-CD set that... Uh, that uh, Amnesty uh, is selling as a fundraiser. I think they, it's still available. And uh, we're going to play... The times there are changing. Flogging Molly is the band I actually have never heard of, but I'm sure they're good. We're going to find out. And uh, we'll be back to talk to Alex Neve, who is the Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, English-speaking section, and uh, we'll do that in just a moment. That soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving So you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing What the fuck? Come riders, critics, from the size with your It is cast The slow one now Will later be fast As the present Now will later be past The order is rapidly Fading 
Okay, and we're back, and uh, it looks like I think we've got uh, we've got Alex back. Do we do we have Alex back? You most certainly do. <laughs> yeah, for some reason or other, we we lost our feed. Oh, oh, I see a button that somehow or other got turned <laughs> off. Oh well, I don't know how that happened. But anyway, everybody else heard the song, and that was Flogging Molly was the name of the band, and the times they are changing, and uh, that was. Bob Dylan, oh, we were sweating bullets there for a second. <laughs> uh, technology <laughs> it can be our greatest friend and our and our greatest challenge. <laughs> we're we're very fortunate to have uh, Jim as our co-host for this program because we, there's not there's nobody else in the room that could make this work. <laughs> but Alex, uh, maybe we it was a great discussion in the uh, first half hour, and uh, we're. Very pleased to have you back for the rest of the program. Um, there's some really significant things that we've been working on uh, in terms of the human rights agenda for Canada that um, we probably f- would be fair to say we've got more work to do on. And um, one of them that you, you referenced the work with respect to and the, the good progress in terms of the announcement with respect to uh, the inquiry on murdered and missing Indigenous women. Um, I think some of the other areas with respect to uh, um, our concerns with respect to the human rights of indigenous peoples, there everybody would agree there's more work to be done. Uh, I know there's many people here who are concerned that the initiative and um, work that Cindy Blockstock has been pursuing for numerous years that with Amnesty's support uh, has not got the follow-through, if we can put it that way, by the new government yet. Um, there may be other things that you could speak to as well. Would that be a good way to start the second uh, half of the program? I think that's a, that's a really important issue to signal, Gord. Is, I mean, on, on the one hand, you've, you've highlighted the, the decision to launch the inquiry with respect to Indigenous women. Uh, and in a number of other ways, uh, there's been some very encouraging uh, and, in some respects, dramatic changes from the new government when it comes to the rights of Indigenous peoples and and Canada's, you know, the relationship with Indigenous peoples in Canada. So we've we've seen the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, it's fully embraced by the government. We've seen a lot of talk about uh, there being a new nation-to-nation relationship that's going to be forged with Indigenous peoples in Canada. We've seen the inquiry. Uh, we've seen in in this year's federal budget significant amounts of money uh, with respect to a range of First Nations, Métis, and, and Inuit needs. Um, and we've seen the government announce at the United Nations uh, with considerable fanfare that, that Canada now unequivocally adopts the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, something the, the past government had at one point been absolutely opposed to, and then even once they changed their mind, were certainly at best very uh, very neutral around it. So that's all good. Uh, however, and there's a big but here, and, and of course it's, it's not anything that was going to be resolved within uh, a few short months. The, the issues are too deep, too complex, and too long-standing. But there's, there's ways in which, while there's all of those positive things I've pointed to, uh, we are also uh, not hearing uh, some, some, some of the things we need to hear. And I think you've, you've highlighted one in particular. There was great elation when the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal issued its ruling with respect to Cindy Blackstock's landmark human rights complaint, uh, drawing attention to the discriminatory levels of funding provided for child protection on uh, on reserves as opposed to the levels of child protection all other children receive elsewhere in Canada. That was a huge breakthrough. 
uh, and and it was very encouraging when we heard that the federal government, which previously under the past government had fought that case and fought Cindy herself personally uh, very vehemently, was not going to appeal the ruling. Uh, but we then waited to hear what would come of it, uh, how quickly and how fully would we see some announcements of uh, a response that clearly addressed the discrimination, ensured that the full and proper amounts of funding are provided, and that's where things have fallen short. And, and Cindy has been very eloquent across the country in uh, drawing attention to this and expressing her considerable disappointment that that while the governments, on one hand, kind of said the right thing on this file, they have not yet delivered the goods. Another area that we've uh, highlighted is mounting concern that all the talk about nation-to-nation relationship, new beginnings, the embrace of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which includes the very important human rights safeguards around meaningful consultation and free prior and informed consent uh, with Indigenous peoples uh, doesn't necessarily seem to be too enthusiastically upheld when there's economic interests on the table. And uh, for Amnesty, this has been great concern with um, a massive hydroelectric dam that's being developed in northeast British Columbia in the Peace Valley, uh, which is which is charging ahead despite the fact that the First Nations in the area who are uh, directly and and very profoundly impacted by this because it will end up flooding uh, sacred areas, burial grounds, uh, destroy an area which is central to traditional hunting and trapping and culture in the area, uh, and thus uh, the, the considerable opposition from First Nations in the area. Regardless of that, construction had begun, uh, or the early steps had begun uh, under the previous government, and we were waiting for some sort of indication that that maybe the nation-to-nation relationship would finally be on display here, and there would be a decision to stop or at least temporarily halt construction while there could be a, a proper consultation uh, with uh, with Indigenous peoples. Uh, but no, uh, recently the federal government issued uh, some permits that were needed to keep the construction going. So that was very disappointing. Uh, and uh, Amnesty International is intensifying, not just within Canada, but right around the world is going to be intensifying campaigning on that particular example. And, and doing so for two reasons. Um, number one, the, the human rights concerns associated with the Site C Dam are on their own merit, very troubling, uh, and from our perspective, the human rights issues are very clear uh, that construction should not be going ahead. But we're also doing so because we really feel it's an iconic, emblematic example of of what needs to change uh, if we are truly going to move into a new nation-to-nation relationship that's focused on reconciliation and that is grounded in true respect for the rights of Indigenous peoples. So stay tuned, and I hope hope people who share that concern will join us in the effort to stop the Site C Dam. Thank you, Alex. And, uh, you know, there's another... um area of our our human rights work and um, that I'd like to kind of return the discussion to and that's uh, with respect to arms trade um, particularly where arms are traded where two countries where there are significant human rights abuses Um, and perhaps this is one area where we haven't been as pleased as we might have been with respect to the initiatives of the the new government yet Um, and maybe you could speak to that. I I know you know. I was thinking before the program, and when we were looking at the the significant list of countries that you visited yourself, and this includes uh, Sudan and the Darfur area. And uh, I've heard you speak to that your 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 work in that area previously. And now we see that uh, not only are we trading weapons. T- to Saudi Arabia, where there's obviously human rights concerns, but also to arms are flowing into the S- Sudan uh, and South Sudan. So maybe you can 
sort of speak to where we're at on that issue in terms of the arms trade and sure well i think this is another area where on one hand we've we've heard some very positive signs and and what is positive here is that uh, the government, and they had made this commitment during the election campaign, so it, it, it didn't come as a surprise, um, but they have committed to ratify a very important UN treaty dealing with the arms trade, known as the Arms Trade Treaty, which has, um, which has only been, uh, around for, um, uh, for a couple of years now, and, um, and is attracting very wide support. There's, uh, Somewhere in the range of about 60 to 65 or even close to 70 countries that have now formally ratified it. Uh, there's another 70 or so that have at least taken the first symbolic step of signing it. So, so roughly two-thirds of the world states have either bound themselves to it or... Uh, have taken that first step. Canada's done neither, uh, and the previous government was certainly no fan of the treaty uh, and wasn't exactly moving forward uh, towards becoming a party to it. Uh, the the new government has confirmed that election promise and has made it very clear that Canada will be signing on to the arms trade treaty and and intends to hopefully be able to do so by the end of this year. That's obviously approaching, but we're still hopeful they may reach that timeline. At the same time, though, we are having individual cases start to emerge this year, which I guess, if anything, at least highlight why it's very important that Canada sign on to this treaty and and, and the need for us to significantly tighten up our arms control processes. Obviously, the, the most notorious and well-known to listeners will be the controversy over the sale of um, 15... $16 billion worth of light armored vehicles uh, manufactured in London, Ontario, and going to be sold to Saudi security forces, which is of concern on two fronts. Number one, we know that light armored vehicles have often been used in in dispersing protests in Saudi Arabia, in particular in, in the Shia-dominated eastern parts of Saudi Arabia. But even more dramatically, we're very concerned because Saudi Arabia military forces are leading a coalition intervention in the fighting in Yemen and doing so in ways where there have been rampant violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law, Amnesty International, the United Nations, Human Rights Watch. Other experts and commentators have have been unanimous in condemning the Saudi forces for committing war crimes. And while much of that has been from the air, it's, it's mostly been aerial strikes, uh, and it's included aerial strikes on hospitals and those sorts of things, uh, we're concerned that the likelihood and possibility that, um, that ground operations, which are part of the intervention as well, um, also uh, are becoming problematic, and that those ground operations very easily and readily could and, and almost certainly would involve light armored vehicles as uh, amongst the many um, uh, bits of, of military uh, equipment that get deployed and that some of those would be the Canadian uh, uh, light armored vehicles and so for that reason we've we've said this should not go ahead but unfortunately um, obviously the past government is the one that got the ball rolling here um, the current government did have an opportunity to to end it and could have chosen not to issue the permits that were needed to actually get the exports underway, but earlier this year, that's exactly what they did. So that's one thing that's come to light. The other is that through some incredible reporting by both the Globe and Mail and CBC, we've come to learn that an Ontario-based arms company known as the Strite Group, uh, which has a factory in Innisfil, Ontario, has through its offshore plant, and that's where the complexity comes in here, its offshore plant in the United Arab Emirates has over the last several years uh, been involved in selling armored personnel carriers and amphibious um, uh, vehicles to South Sudan, which of course for three years has been in the midst of a horrific civil war which has provoked one of the most uh, glaring humanitarian and human rights crises anywhere in the world. Libya, uh, which has been in the middle of anarchic, chaotic, militia-led fighting for years now, and Sudan, uh, and there's indications that the 
the vehicles that were sold to Sudan have found their way into fighting in both Darfur and a lesser-known conflict in the southern part of Sudan in a state called South Kordofan. What all three of those countries, South Sudan, Sudan, and Libya, have in common is that as the fighting rages on in those countries, it's overwhelmingly civilians who are, uh, who are being targeted, who are being killed, who are being injured. And it is unconscionable that a Canadian company, be it direct from their factory in Canada or be it indirectly through complicated corporate arrangements through an offshore plant in another country, would even consider would even entertain the possibility, let alone then actually follow through on selling arms into the middle of those kinds of full-out horrific civil wars. Uh, In two of the instances, Sudan and Libya, uh, there's pretty clear indication that it might even have been in violation of UN Security Council sanctions, uh, and that gives rise to the possibility that it could even be a criminal offense under Canadian law. It's our understanding that the RCMP has open files and is looking at that and will be certainly interested to hear more. But those those situations, all of which have arisen fairly recently, and I think for most Canadians have been a bit of a revelation. I don't think most Canadians have really thought that Canada is a, a country that, that has much of an arms trade. We think that's other countries. Well, Here's indication not only do we have a very active arms industry, um, but we do have companies that are willing to sell arms to some pretty unsavory partners. And as we move forward with signing on to the arms trade treaty, it's going to be very crucial to ensure that we have the right regulations in place that will guard against this happening in the future. So just with respect to that particular topic, uh, Alex, uh you know, we must, I assume we're having ongoing discussions with the government of Canada on the arms sales themselves. Um, and is it a, really what they're saying is that the question of economics, again, is what's playing in, into it? Or uh, No, they, uh, I mean, whether or not that is is much of the motivation behind the scenes is another question. That's certainly... Uh, that's certainly not how they've defended it. Um, the, with respect to the Saudi deal, because that's the one where there's really been the most government engagement, uh, the the government has said that they felt that they had no choice uh, because the deal had already been authorized and approved by the former government. Um, clearly, we and others disagree with that, given that there was a specific step where the new government actually issued export permits to allow it to go ahead, a decision that they could have chosen not to. Whether or not that would have been exposed then to some legal liability, the, the possibility that the, that the company uh, might have sued them for damages because of the, the lost commercial profits um, is another question. Obviously, our response to that would be, well, human rights violations don't have a price tag, so that's not part of the should not be part of the decision-making. Uh, the government has also indicated that they feel confident uh, that, I may be overstating it, but that they're, they don't have reason to believe that those light-armored vehicles will be misused. Uh, they say there has not yet been any proof of Canadian light-armored vehicles being misused because there are some there's been, there have been previous sales under previous arrangements in the past of light armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. Um, there has been some back and forth around this. There's some journalists who have uh, been able to find some photographs of what are purported to be light armored vehicles uh, being used in uh, conflict zones, so uh, it, with Canadian flags on them. Um, that's to a certain degree, that's a distracting debate about whether or not actual Canadian light-armored vehicles have or have not been used in the past. Uh, The question is a forward-looking question, and that is, do we believe, given the combination of the repressive way Saudi forces often respond to protests within Saudi Arabia, but more crucially and more recently, uh, the war crimes that Saudi forces have been committing in neighboring Yemen, that there's a serious possibility that those light-armored vehicles could be misused now. We say yes, 
at this point in time, the government is saying they don't think they're over that threshold yet. You know, Alex, uh, unfortunately, we're kind of close to, very close to the end of the program, and I'm sure we could carry on this conversation for another hour easily. I'd like to uh, really express our gratitude for you taking your time out of a very busy schedule and, and joining us for Human Rights Radio today. It's, it really is an honor to have you to call in, and um, I, I expect uh, there will be an update to the uh, the uh, human rights agenda later this year on the uh, Amnesty site, and uh, um, people probably can find uh, more information about that there. Um, but uh, thank you again for for joining us today. Uh, well, it's been it's been a real pleasure uh, to both of you, uh, Gordon and, and Jim, and and just to say more widely again, we we certainly appreciate uh, all the great human rights energy we often feel in Saskatchewan. There's some great activism uh, that uh, that addresses the issues we've been speaking about today and and the broader human rights agenda. And I express my appreciation for that and look forward to it continuing. Thank you. And now we're going to do one more reminder about our communathon, not, pardon me, not communathon, the radiothon. I don't know where that came from. And we want to thank our listeners for their generous support of Regina Community Radio during Radiothon 2016. If you haven't already done so, please may, make sure to honor your pledge before noon Friday, October 21st. I think I might have said the draw was today, but it's not. It's October 21st. One lucky donor will win a week-long, all-inclusive holiday holiday to Cayo Santa Maria, Cuba for two adults, courtesy of Carlson Wagenly Rickard Travel and Transat to be drawn, yes, on October 21st at 5 p.m. On, 5 p.m. on the air. And if you didn't make a pledge during Radiothon, there's still time. Uh, you can do that uh, up until uh, October 21st, or perhaps the 20th, somewhere in that neighborhood, Begord. And we want to thank everyone so much for their support from all of us at 91.3 FM CJTR. As we close this week's Human Rights Radio on CJTR Community Radio, we hope you've enjoyed listening to and have learned something new about human rights for all people. If you have any questions about today's show or other human rights questions, email us at humanrightsradiocjtr at gmail.com. Past shows can be accessed by visiting humanrightsradio.podbean.com. Pioneering human rights campaigner Peter Benenson said, Only when the last prisoner of conscience has been freed, the last torture chamber has been closed, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a Reality for the World's People, will our work be done.